Because Money was originally recorded as a video podcast, so there may be visuals that don't carry through to this audio-only version. Please visit becausemoney.ca to see the show notes, related links, and more. Here we go. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Because Money podcast. Uh, thanks for sticking with us. We've uh, experienced some technical difficulties. Completely my fault. And uh, Yeah, so if you're, if you're exploring the internet and you happen to find the John Travoltifizer and you want to Travoltify your name, if you Travoltified our guest's name, uh, you would get Dodd Blork. So I would like to introduce you to Dodd Blork, who's joining us on the Because Money podcast. Rob will actually let you officially introduce our guest, and we'll go from there. If you need to hit us on the Twitter, hashtag Because Money, I will be moderating. Looking forward to this one. Here we go. So we're really excited to have Dan Bordelotti, Canadian Couch Potato, and... Uh large Money Sense magazine with us tonight. Welcome, Dan. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So we're going to talk about uh, investor behavior. You had a great article in, uh, in the most recent Money Sense about uh, investor behavior and how to train your investing brain. So I want to talk about that. And, you know, we always hear of, uh, you know, people say if you invest in the long term in the, in the market, it should return, you know, 8 to 10% per year. Um, you know, but then a lot. There's a lot of studies out there that say individual investors fall well short of that. Um, and I kind of want. I want to ask you why. Why is that? Um, and maybe and then we'll talk about some of the behavioral traits that kind of lead to our downfall or being our worst own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that uh, the problem is, you know, human beings are really not hardwired to be great investors. Um, we have a certain emotional makeup and, and, and temperaments that we've developed over you know hundreds of thousands of years of evolution and I don't think they really uh, have shaped us in a way that allows us to do all of the things that you knew or that you need to do in order to be a good investor I mean we uh, are all burdened by problems like overconfidence um, anxiety uh, we have another number of other you know what are psychologists would call cognitive biases that just make it very difficult for us to make good long-term decisions. I think in general uh, humans are not very good at long-term thinking. Um, We react emotionally and we think very short-term and as anyone who has any experience in investing knows um, you cannot invest you know with a view to the three or six months or 12 months ahead. You need to make decisions based on the long-term uh, one of the great analogies that I've heard used before was, you know, investing is like hitting a golf ball off a tee and not knowing where it lands for five to ten years. You know, you don't have the immediate feedback that you do with so many of the other activities we do in life, right? Most of the things that we do something poorly, we know right away. If we do something well, we get feedback right away. With investing, you could do something completely boneheaded and get a great result. Or you could do something that's extremely prudent and well thought out and have a poor result. So um, it's very important not to be outcome oriented and to just you know look at those decisions with a, a longer term view, which is something I think we all find quite difficult. Now you talked about overconfidence, and and that's, that doesn't we're we're hardwired that way, and that doesn't doesn't just uh, you know ten or doesn't just look at investing. It looks at you know a lot of different aspects in life. We you talk about in the article. We all think we're above average drivers or, 
you know, whatever the case may be. So, you know, what is it that's kind of hardwired in our brains to maybe think we're better than we are at, uh, at investing? I think when you think about that, I mean, it makes perfect evolutionary sense, right? I mean, if all of us um, were aware that, you know, at most things we do, we are going to be mediocre, right? At a, at a good number of things we do, we're going to be below average. Um, if you think about what it would be like to live like that, would be extremely difficult. I mean, no one would ever start a business, right? No one would ever take risks because if we analyzed every decision rationally and honestly assessed our chances of success, it would be so discouraging. And so I think it's actually a great thing in many ways that um, our minds, you know, give us that sort of overconfidence that say, yeah, we're better than average, right? Um, even though the odds are stacked against us, we're still going to do this activity. Most of the time, that's actually a good quality. Um, in investing, it can be a little bit different because I think in investing, it does require a certain amount of humility. And I think that it's very important for us to recognize that, you know, if you want to take, if you want to be an active investor, it means that you've got to beat other people. Um, if you take a more sort of long-term, prudent, buy-and-hold approach, that's not really the case, right? You don't really need to beat anyone. You just need to invest in global capitalism. And if that's a success, then you will be too. Um, so, you know, again, I, got, I think overconfidence is actually not a bad quality in a lot of activities, but in investing, it can really be fatal. Now, you talked about, um, you know, not wanting to be mediocre. And I want to throw it over to Sandy. You're, you're a big uh, a proponent of index investing and kind of simple uh, strategies. And... I want to talk to you about maybe some of the clients you've dealt with that don't want to be mediocre. You know, you think of index investing, I'm just going to accept the market returns minus fees. Um, you know, to a lot of people that sounds like uh, mediocrity and they probably want to strive to, to beat the index. So what, what would you say to those clients? Oh, golly. <clears throat> That's an ongoing conversation. It's, it happens all the time. I remember even at the bank, it happened a lot. And you can't say a lot because, frankly, I don't know, Dan, if you have had these conversations, Rob, but you, you probably have. It's not necessarily that people are, I mean, they're, they're kind of swaggering into the office or, you know, on the phone, oh, I'm so smart. It's not really that so much. It's there, you have to, there are people who are so new to the world of investing that you have to bring them up to a certain level of knowledge before they can admit that they, they don't have any knowledge at all. Like, I don't have a problem with that because I have a really bad case of imposter syndrome, so I just assume that everybody else is way better at everything than me, and I'm just going to be, you know, I'm just a fraud at everything. But So that's, I mean, index investing works really great for that for me. But for everybody else, I mean, I, 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 it ne it's never my job to sit there and say, you know, you're really stupid. Of course you're not going to beat the market. And my, it's never really my job. I don't, I don't, if I feel like I'm going to have to convince somebody to become an index investor, then it's not a conversation I really want to have. I want to point out the facts of their portfolio and how much they're paying in fees and right. how much those fees are getting in performance. But if I, if I feel like my job is to twist their arm into something that they're not really that um, convinced of, then probably the second they get off the phone with me or maybe two months down the road, they're just going to not really pay attention to that anyway. So that won't do it. It'll do more harm than good. You know, and the fact is, it's, um, I'll throw it back to you, Dan, it's not, uh, it's actually not a question about mediocrity, it's, um, you know, if you invest in a, you know, a passive, in a passive way, and you're buying a kind of a slice of the market, you're actually going to beat, I don't know how many, what the percentage is now, 80, 90% of active 
managed funds or active managed portfolios. So it's not mediocrity. You're actually, you know, kicking butt uh, over 90% of investors. Yeah, that's a really important distinction that I think is often lost is people will say things like, you know, why would you want to accept average returns, right? And because think about it, in most things we do in life, we don't want to be average, right? I mean, who wants to be average at their job or, you know, who wants to be an average parent or, you know, average at, at, at our hobbies and things like that? We want to be outstanding. But the difference is that when we say as an indexer you accept average returns, what we mean are the market averages. We don't mean average related to other investors. So if you had a room of a thousand people and you said, you know, how many of you are getting average returns, we don't mean add up the returns of all 1,000 people and divide by a thousand. What we mean is how many of you actually earn returns that are close to the market average. And you know, my estimate would be, if it was 10%, I would be pretty shocked. So um, it's important to understand that the average investor does not earn the market averages. They earn well below that. And I mean, the research has shown not only do most funds underperform, but most investors underperform the funds, right? So because what will happen is that investors rush into the funds when they're successful, and then they sell them when they're unsuccessful, and so their returns actually underperform the fund itself. And so you've got really two levels of, of failure working against there. You've got, you know, the active fund managers are failing, and then the investors are failing in not even collecting what those African managers do. So it's it's a big. I hurdle. would actually say. And I would say probably there's actually three levels because I remember having conversations in the early years of being licensed as a mutual fund advisor and telling people like, oh, well, you don't want that fund anymore because this is the one that we're advertising and it has five stars. So definitely unload that one and load this one up. So I think there's that layer of, and not, I mean, obviously not every financial advisor is giving horrible advice, but the ones that don't really spend any time thinking about it and just kind of listen to the market call or whatever the last thing was that's been advertised. I think there's that third layer of incompetence in there that's that's um, creating a problem. If I could throw in my two cents. <laughs> so one of the interesting ones for me, and I'm guilty of this, is the uh, I don't know if it was touched on in the article, but uh, it's the home country bias. So there, uh, if you, the Canadian you know Canadian investors are more likely to have uh, you know a larger percentage of Canadian stocks or mutual funds in their portfolio. So, you know, again, why is that? We should just feel more confident. Maybe I'll ask Jackson, you know, would you feel more comfortable buying a Canadian stock or a Canadian uh, index fund versus, say, a Chinese stock or a Russian stock? Well, yeah, that's, no, that's a great, actually, it's, that's very close to home. I've got a, a buddy, Brad, who actually has a, a fund in Mongolia, which it's kind of like he says, yeah, we should invest in concrete in Mongolia. And I'm like, wait a minute, I lost my money in oil in Saskatchewan, which I actually knew about. I know nothing about concrete in Mongolia. So, no, I I, I, I play the home team favorite. I mean, it's why I cheer for the Blue Jays. I don't like <laughs> the Blue Jays, but they're in Canada, so you got to pull for them, right? So I, I think that, yeah, the, the hometown bias is certainly the way to go. Um, jumping in on the, the Twitter... Noel D'Souza says, if 80 to 90% of funds don't beat the market consistently, does that mean 10 to 20% of funds do? Yeah, is that a question for me? Sure. Yeah, why not? Let's throw that out to you. 
Well, I would I'd say, I mean, it, it might be something in the area of 5 to 10% of funds over a given, you know, 5 or 10-year period. I mean, it depends on how you're measuring it. There's lots of different statistics there. But let, let's say a small percentage of funds outperform over a given period. But this is the important thing is that there is no indication that those same funds will outperform over the next period. And this has been studied to death. I mean, for example, if you've got a fund with a 10-year track record of beating the market, its likelihood of beating the market over the next 10 years is no greater than any other fund, right? And in fact, it has been proven time and again the greatest predictor of future performance relative to the index is low cost, right? I mean, if you want, if you're comparing a group of funds with low cost versus a group of funds with high cost, you can have pretty high probability that the ones with the low cost are going to outperform. But if you look at funds that have had excellent past performance against other funds who have had not so great past performance, there's actually very little correlation there. So, you know, uh, it, yes, there will always be a percentage that will outperform over a period. It's just impossible to identify which ones are going to be the winners. And that's always the case, you know. People will say to me all the time, but, you know, there are lots of fund managers beat the beat the index. And said, that's true. I mean, over any period, a significant minority of funds will win. As soon as someone can figure out which ones it's going to be ahead of time, let me know, because that is always the problem, right? No one's saying it's impossible to beat the benchmark. We're just saying it's difficult and it's impossible to know which ones are going to do it in advance. And I, But I think if we're speaking to the overconfidence that you're talking about earlier, I think we all believe that we're in that 5 to 10% that will. And I know that when I had my hand back in 2008, 2009 at picking stocks, I thought I was on fire. Mm. I thought I was just the king. And I lost 98% of my portfolio in two weeks. Wow. Like, I don't think you could do worse ever. <laughs> I think you could write a case study on how bad I did. But I mean, yeah, it, I. but I walked in like I was the boss. And the overconfidence... The market, yeah, they say it's dangerous, all eggs, one basket, forget it. I just walked in and was a complete tool bag, but I'm out now. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great point um, in, in terms of the, you know, everybody thinks that they have an edge, right? Um, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the, about the misleading nature of the feedback you get in investing. There is a tendency for investors to take credit for their success, and to ascribe their lack of success to bad luck, right? So if I do well, it's because I'm smart, and if I do poorly, it's because I'm unlucky, right? And that again, it's a natural human tendency, not just in investing, but you know, I'm an avid poker player. I see that all the time, right? If you have a good day, it's because you played great, and if you have a bad day, it's because you didn't get any cards, yeah. right? And that's that's a really common uh, feeling in in investing and. It leads you to rampant overconfidence when you have a good run. So what about loss aversion? Now, you talked about uh, the example I'm sure we've all heard or, or felt ourselves is that, you know, I've got a, a losing stock or u losing fund in my portfolio, but uh, I don't want to get rid of it until it comes back to even, you know, until I make my money back. Now, you know, so what what is it that makes us feel that way and, and why is that kind of the wrong way of thinking? Yeah, that's a great example. I mean, what happens is uh, just in general, you know, as, as humans, we have, we don't like to admit that we've made mistakes and we don't like to admit wrong. And there's lots of evidence that most investors in individual stocks 
have a tendency to sell the ones that have gone up and hang on to the ones that have gone down. Now, it depends on the context because that's not always a bad thing to do. Um, and certainly as an index investor, when you're investing in entire asset classes, you know, that's called rebalancing, right? Selling what's gone up and buying what's gone down or holding on to what's gone down. That's a good thing. With individual stocks, I think it's a little bit different because I think at some point, uh, if you make a bad call on a stock and it loses 70 or 80% of its value, right? Think about that for a second. I mean, remember, if a stock loses half its value, it needs to have a 100% return in order to get you back to even. So what are the chances that your stock is going to deliver a 100% return, right? But the problem is, if we sell it, it's an admission of failure, right? When you sell a stock that has gone down, you are saying, I made a mistake, I bought a bad stock, it was a bad decision, and I was wrong, right? If you sell a stock that's gone up, it's called taking profits, yeah. right? It's a good thing. It's look at me, I picked a great stock, it went up, and now I sold it at a profit. Even if it keeps going up, it doesn't really matter. You still made money and you feel good about it. If you look at uh, portfolio management over a longer term, I mean, selling what's gone down is actually what you want to do, especially in a taxable account, right? I mean, selling things that have gone up means capital gains taxes. Selling something that's gone down means you get to harvest a loss, and maybe next time you're right, you'll be able to defer that gain for a little bit longer. So you actually want to sell things that have gone down. Um, and if you made a bad call, I mean, you made a bad call, admit it, sell the stock and move on. And I think a lot of people think that they're, you know, when it when it's sitting there and you're kind of waiting and you haven't sold or, or bought and you're just holding on to it, it's just kind of on paper. It's not, once you sell it, you're kind of locking in that loss. And, and just like you said, it's that kind of admission of failure. It's exactly right. It's that, this idea that, you, as you describe it, locking in a loss, right? As long as you don't sell it, there's always a chance it could come back, right? But as soon as you sell it, now you've admitted defeat. Right? And I think that's very difficult for people to, to accept. I wanted to, you talked a little bit about the taxable accounts, and there's certainly some, um, you know, some certain circumstances where our behavior might be dictated by you know, uh, like you talked about with capital gains and losses. And I just want to circle back to the home country bias because mm -hmm. isn't it, isn't it true that, I don't know, I don't know how long it's been now, but like in an RSP, you could only keep, you know, 30% of your portfolio in foreign, foreign equities. So is a lot of that kind of baked into how, um, you know, how that was treated at that time? I think for people who have been investing for a long time, that might have been the case. And it's only been, I think it was 2005, that they finally relaxed all of that foreign content rule. So you're right. You could only hold a, a small proportion uh, of foreign equities in your uh, RSP to begin with. So people got used to holding Canadian stocks. But if you look at the research, home bias is rampant in every country in the world. And, you know, I'm assuming in those other countries don't have that same kind of foreign content ceiling in their retirement accounts. But, you know, you go to... Italy, people buy Italian stocks. If you go to Finland, you know, they buy Nokia, right? I mean, even, even small countries that have very tiny markets. And we often, you know, point out that Canada makes up only about 4% of the global equity market. You know, that's actually, I think it's in the top five or six in the world. I mean, there really are not very many countries that have bigger public stock markets than Canada. So, if you are an investor in a place like Finland or Sweden or Holland, 
you know, the, the choices that you have are even smaller, and yet you will still see people loading up on local companies. And I think the reason for that is we have the impression that what is familiar is safer, right? I mean, Shoppers Drug Mart and Tim Hortons and these companies that we deal with every day, they're so familiar to us that they feel safe. But, you know, I like to remind people, like, I could live in the same city that Tim Hortons is headquartered in, or I could live in, you know, Timbuktu, and the stock is going to return the same. It doesn't make any, it doesn't care where you live, right? And so if I hold Coca-Cola, it's the same level of risk as someone, you know, who lives in the U.S. Or um, So that risk is really an illusion, right? Um, now, there are some, country, some countries, for example, that have less strict governance regulations. Like I would argue that, you know, investing in, in some emerging countries or frontier markets are certainly riskier than Canada. But it's pretty hard to argue that U.S. stocks are riskier than Canadian stocks, right? Or British stocks are... You know, more risky than Canada. I just, that doesn't make any sense. So, I mentioned in the intro um, about recency bias. So, you know, a lot of so we start. You know, we started our blog in 2010. I think I started my investment portfolio as, as a do-it-yourselfer in, in a discount brokerage in uh, 2009. Right at the start, I mean, pretty much the bottom of the of the financial crisis hit in March 2009. And from from then on, it's been a bull market. It's been up, up, up. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe talk a little bit about recency bias and what that looks like as far as uh, kind of fueling our overconfidence. Uh, I think it's it's so important right now. I mean, I can't tell you the volume of email I get now from investors who have just started, you know, the investing journey, say three, four years ago, and who said. I have a very high tolerance for risk. Um, volatility doesn't bother me. Uh, if my portfolio fell in value, I would be okay with that. And I say, really? When did your portfolio fall in value? Right? Because, I mean, except for a couple months in 2011, it's been a pretty great run since 2009. Um, and so people look at the recent past and they think that, you know, they evaluate their investing. Uh, temperament based on what's happened recently. So I don't really trust anybody's self-proclaimed risk tolerance unless they went through the 2008-2009 debacle, lost half their money, and then you know came out the other end without having panicked. If you did that, then I would believe you. But if you yeah. didn't endure that, you really don't know what what your uh, risk tolerance is. Um, I'd say the benchmark is someone who did the Smith maneuver in 2007 or 8 and yeah. still has it intact. Yeah, if you did that, then uh, <laughs> then I believe you. But, uh, Jackson has an anecdote to share along those lines. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. The uh, the other thing that I see all the time now in terms of the recency bias is related to what you were saying earlier, Rob, about the home bias. Um, I regularly get emails and, and um, responses now that people say to me, uh, you know, Dan, your portfolios are like one-third Canadian, one-third U.S., one-third international. That's way too much Canada, right? I mean, Canada is just a small part of the stock market, and, you know, 
it's it's really been a bit of a laggard these last couple of years. And I said, where were you five years ago when Canada was outperforming the rest of the world? Well, I know where you were. You were sending me emails saying, why do you have international stocks in your portfolio? I mean, everyone in Canada should just invest in Canadian stocks. I mean, they're the best in the world. We have the best robust economy, and we have this and that and the other. And it's like everybody makes their assessment of you know, what's risky and what's an appropriate portfolio allocation based on what's happened in the last three to five years, right? And I know that sooner or later Canada's going to start outperforming the U.S. and international, and the cycle's going to change again, and I'm going to get the questions, why would I invest in international stocks when Canada's the place to be? So it's really important to have, again, to take that sort of long-term historical approach there's no reason to believe that Canada, U.S., or international stocks will have any appreciable difference in terms of their expected returns and volatility over the very long term. And so, you know, the easiest way to manage your portfolio is to buy all of them and rebalance. And uh, it and takes leave, all the Leave guesswork. it alone. Yep. Exactly. You know, what drives me nuts about the, especially just the, emerging, the emergence of ETFs, you know, I think they're a great product, but... The fact that so many get introduced, and then we just most recently had, you know, some slashing in, uh, in, uh, you know, the the fund costs, and so every time that happens, I'm sure you get a flood of emails and responses saying, "You got to update your model portfolios. We got to be in yep. this fund and that fund now," and you know, shouldn't that's kind of leading to some of these uh, investor behavior problems, isn't it? Like. We should be leaving things alone? I think so. You know, there, there's something to be said, and again, there's lots of evidence for this. It's one of the things I touched on uh, in the Money Sense article is um, what has been called the paradox of choice. And it's this idea that, yes, we all like choices. Nobody likes to have things imposed on us. But if we have so many choices, the quality of our decisions go down. And the most important thing is our satisfaction with those decisions go down. So um, there's evidence, for example, that people, like I think, for example, my, my wife has this great um, uh, group RSP at work, and she's got eight fun choices, right? And you need four to, you know, to build a diversified portfolio. She can choose between four index funds or four actively managed funds, and the actively managed funds are very inexpensive, so it's pretty tough to make a bad decision there. Um, I look at other plans that have you know, 50, 60, 80 funds to choose from. I cannot imagine what an onerous task that is for an employee to pick up their handbook and say, I don't even know where to begin. I can't possibly research all of these funds. So what am I going to do? Well, there, again, there's, there are a number of studies that have shown the more fun choices you give to an employee, the less likely they are to participate in the plan. And the more frustrated they are because they end up putting their money in money market funds just because they can't be bothered to make what they feel is an onerous decision. I think that's fascinating, right? And in the old days when there was four or five ETFs in Canada, it was easy. Now there's 300. So it's it's quite difficult. Hey, we got a, now, oh, sorry, go ahead, Jackson. I was going to say, we got a question from the Twitter. Uh, with the next correction, could we see people jumping from self-directed back to advisors? I think that was meant for Dan. Okay. There's a yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think you see a little bit of both. Um, 
after 2008, 2009, I think there were a lot of people who were self-directed investors and did panic and sold at the wrong time and probably thought, maybe I do need the discipline imposed by an advisor. The problem with that is a lot of advisors aren't very disciplined either. And lots of the people who sold in a panic in 2008, 2009 were advisors. So um, I also saw a lot of people leave their advisors at that time rather than rush to them. So I think it depends on the advisor. If you've got a pro that you're working with who has a disciplined strategy, and uh, I often said to people, if, if your advisor made you stay invested during 2008, 2009, they earn their fees for the next 10 years. Because if you had panicked at the wrong time and missed that recovery, you will never make that money back. And so if, you know, the key as always isn't just find an advisor, it's find the right type of advisor who will actually help you stick to that uh, long-term strategy. Dan, I was going to ask you, um, well, first of all, like your, your model portfolios that you have on your site are, are quite simple. You know, like, you know, we, we like the E-Series one. It's four funds, mm -hmm. um, you know, kind of removes that whole paradox of choice um, because, and, and I love it for my um, RESP. You know, I just, you know, every month I just buy the next one and I go around and around. And, uh, you know, it just makes it simple. And, and um, you know, that, that choice for people, I think, not only the amount of funds and amount of ETFs that are out there, but, you know, all the, all the noise that you hear in the, in the media and on, on, you know, the business news, you know, it just makes people want to tinker. And, and I think, you know, is it possible to have, is it possible to be completely kind of emotionally detached from your money when you're investing? I haven't met too many people who are emotionally detached, you know, from their money. Uh, and I don't think you should be. Like, I'm not suggesting that you become, you know, robotic in your approach. Um, you know, money is an important part of all of our lives, and it's important to uh, have some emotion around it because, you know, I always say to people it's really important to give your investing a context, right? And think about why are you doing this? It's not a game, right? I mean, the reason that you invest is because you want to grow the amount of money you have so at some point in the future you can enjoy it, right? You're just deferring that gratification until sometime later in life. But you know, ultimately, we want to spend our money, or we want to give it to our children or to our charities or whatever. But you know, it, it needs to be there to generate happiness, right? It isn't just numbers on a page. So you know, we, we don't want to be emotionally detached from it. We just want to be emotionally disciplined, and you know, we just want to be able to execute that strategy in a simple way and not always be worried that there's something out there that's better. You know, that's one of the biases I see all the time. I mean, we have, uh, I've seen, you know, we build portfolios for clients, for example, that are, you know, these beautiful, simple, elegant portfolios with four or five moving parts, you know, unbelievably diversified compared to what they came to us with, um, incredibly cheap, you know, under, under 15 basis points sometimes in cost. I mean, you can't do better than that. But, you know, after we implement the portfolio, it's always like, well, what if we uh, get a little small cap exposure and what yeah. if we add a little bit of gold? And it's like, why why do you want to tinker with such an elegant solution? And, I, again, I think it's just in our nature. We don't like to – we don't – we resist simple solutions. 
Uh, we don't want to miss out on the Mongolian concrete uh, <laughs> explosion. <right? laughs> there is always a tendency when, when something does well, you feel like, oh, I should have been there. I should have seen that coming. And, you know, you, at some point you realize if you have a broadly based index portfolio, you probably got a little bit of that somewhere anyway. Um, and, you know, you just stay invested all the time and, and you're, you can be sure that you're never going to miss another run up. Final thoughts here as we wrap up, Dan. Can you, there's a lot of good literature out there on investor behavior. Can you maybe talk a little bit about your favorites? Um, you know, what, what, can, what other books are out there that we can pick up to read a little bit more about our lizard brain? <laughs> yeah, there's one that I really enjoy, is, uh, which I think people will be familiar with, is The Behavior Gap by uh, Carl Richards. Um, he's a guy who just has a really great knack for nailing some of those common human biases. Um, and he's also got these great little sketches that he does that, you know, work great on the back of a napkin. And uh, his book really has very little to do with investing proper. He doesn't give you any kind of strategies. He just sort of says, this is the way people think about money, and this is the way they should think about money. And what he calls the behavior gap is the gap between, you know, again, market returns and the returns that you actually achieve, uh, which are, you know, often lower because of your poor behavior. But that's definitely a great place to start. Very easy read. You read it in two hours, and I think it's, it's filled with insights. Excellent. And there was one that uh, you had actually sent me, or I won on your site way back yeah. when, and that was uh, it was called What Investors Really Want. Yeah, by Meyer Statman. Uh, Meyer Statman is a professor at um, Santa Clara University in California and has been writing about behavioral finance for uh, a very long time, one of the pioneers in the field. Um, that's a good one. It's a little bit more technical, I would say, than, than the behavior gap. Um, but one that strikes me that, that you reminded me because they're uh, colleagues is uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, it's not specifically related to investing, although there is uh, some sections on investing. Just a wonderful book that explains, you know, all of these strange behavioral and cognitive biases that humans have uh, and has amazing insights that I think will not only make you a better investor but a better decision maker in general. So we can't always avoid these uh, nasty habits, but it is, uh, would you say, it is, or it is good to be conscious of them, that they're out there, and acknowledge them? Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, we're all human, and we can't, you know, get around the emotional biases, um, but I do think that some self-awareness goes a long way. You know, being able to identify things like, you know, Oh, you know, now now I'm guilty of mental accounting, right? Oh, that was recency bias. Like, just to be able to I put a label on some of those decisions that we make will help us be a little bit more self-aware and avoid some of the biggest mistakes. Great. Great stuff. Well, behavior finance is really fascinating. I've been reading a lot about it lately, and, and uh, we could talk about it all night, but we can't. So I'll shoot it over to Sandy for some final thoughts, if you've got any for us. Oh, I have none. I uh, I just put wanted you to. Um, <laughs> you just wanted to put me on the spot. I did. Um, you did. You really did. And that and thence comes the um. No, I um. I just like listening to Dan talk, <laughs> and I like reading what he has to say. That's all. <laughs> I have well, nothing we, useful to add. I just wanted to listen in. 
it was a great article. So if you don't subscribe to Money Sense, uh, pick up a copy on your newsstand and read Train Your Investing Brain because it's an awesome piece. Uh, Jackson, any final words to send us out? I just want to say thanks to Dan for joining us. I think I've tweeted more of your quotes than I have on any previous Because Money podcast. You're a quote machine. You speak in terms of quotes, and I'm loving it. I'm, I'm like not touching my computer so it doesn't fall apart. And, you know, it's good. So thanks a lot for being here. Really appreciate it, Dan. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks for having me. Alrighty, everyone. See you later. Thanks for joining us, and we're out of here. Goodbye. Hey, thanks a lot, Dan. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Because Money is a labor of love and involved no ads or other sponsorship. Be sure to click the like or subscribe button where you downloaded this from, as we'll help other listeners find the podcast and raise our profile, which in turn makes it easier to book guests. Please visit becausemoney.ca for show notes and related links.